from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, is your company ready for its close-up on climate policy? Why ethics are part of the ESG equation? Addressing eco-anxiety by doing one green thing? And charging cars wirelessly may be coming to a roadway near you. We're all charged up this week on 350. It's April 22nd, 2022, Earth Day. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, all decked out in green, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather, happy Earth Day. Happy every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know you're just back from... uh, so seeing your mom in Hawaii, helping her move, and uh, you're probably with that six time zones mm-hmm. away. So you're probably still wondering, uh, you know, what, what time it is, is. but yeah. it's time. <laughs> yeah, what day it is. But we know who you are. That's the important mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah, I was just down in L.A. Uh, uh, seeing my family uh, for Passover and uh, some other things. It was fun. Uh, got Got to go to the James Corden show, the Late Late Show on CBS to be in the studio audience for one night, which was sort of fun. A friend of ours' uh, daughter works there and got us VIP seats. So that was cool. Nice. But um, nice. Yeah. But what do you do? You do anything for Earth Day or is it just, you know, as we like to say, Friday? You know, I, I do do something for Earth Day, which is that I kind of reset my own personal expectations. Um, but you know, so like, you know how your New Year's Eve is kind of like, <laughs> you get your new sort of resolutions in order this, I, I do think Earth Day is a good reset for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't really do anything special, special. It's the time of year when I'm out in my, my yard, you know, nurturing my perennials and making sure that I'm turning over things and making them more native. Um, that's my personal contribution, my one green thing, um, if you will, that I focus on, but eh, not really. What about you? Yeah, no. I mean, I don't do New Year's resolutions either, mm. so I don't. I don't assess my green <laughs> life uh, any more than I do on an ongoing basis, in sort of an everyday is uh, Earth Day kind of way. I mean, yeah. I mean, Earth Day has never been. I, I often have nothing to do, uh, you know, other than just sort of normal stuff on Earth Day. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, once in a while there'll be a speaking engagement or something. But no, it's just another day. And as as I've written about in some past years, it's just uh, this is what we do. And uh, the only thing I'm happy about on Earth Day is that the the deluge of press pitches starts to slow down a little bit, although there'll be a bunch next week because it's, I guess, Earth, Earth Month still. <sighs> um, but uh, no, it's just another day at the store. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say the one other thing that does happen a lot on that day is that people ask me what I do and try to understand more about my job. And it does give me a chance to really talk about that more. But yeah, other than that, yeah. Well, that's good. Well, let's let's talk about uh, uh, what we did last week in the Week in Review. I'll get us started this week, Joel, with a piece by our regular contributor, Mike DeSocio. He wrote about the first 
generation of wireless inroad charging systems for electric vehicles that are starting to emerge in the United States. Um, this is a piece that he did for our Mobility Weekly newsletter. Thank you for subscribing if you are a subscriber and sign up if you have not. Um, but uh, the, the particular uh, sort of news hook, if you will, is that the uh, Michigan Department of Transportation has awarded a $1.9 million contract to a, a company called Electrion to in install a mile of in-road EV charging in the area, in Motor City, if you will, near Detroit, if you will. I think it's the same name. But bottom line is um, wireless charging is super interesting for a couple of reasons. One is because... Um, you know, we obviously need all the charging infrastructure we can get. But the notion of these technologies is that you're sort of continuing to, to keep the battery updated and, and, and replenished as you are in certain areas. So, for example, like, like let's just conceptually say that you could put it in a city um, and potentially the vehicles in the city would, would stay charged as they are roaming around the city um, or they would, they, you know, you're never kind of letting the battery get empty, if you will. Um, you know, and wouldn't therefore need less, you know, curb EV infrastructure, you know, EV charging stations in parking spaces and so forth. So Electrion is a company um, that's been doing projects in Europe. Um, they've got things going on in Germany, Italy, and Sweden. And this is the first one in the United States um, being expected to be operational about two years. Um, they're not the only company in this space. There's a, a one that, that I think folks will know the name of better, which is Whitricity. Um, they're also working on this. So, you know, I think it's just, we know we need EV charging infrastructure. This is another take. It's very much emerging, um, but it's, I think, a really important um, thing to think about. If you think about like just wireless in general, wireless technologies, um, wireless networks, Wi-Fi, uh, they seem to be like, yeah, they'll catch on. Yeah, they'll catch on. Yeah, and then all of a sudden they're everywhere. Um, this is a little bit different because you do have to, you know, in the case of Electrion, I don't know about the electricity technology, but in the case of Electrion, you're putting the infrastructure into the road, right? Um, it, you know, so you do have to do projects, and is an infrastructure project that could be harder to do some than you know just putting something on the curb, but you know. It's just a, an interesting idea, I think. So that's yeah. that's what prompted. Well, it's more than an interesting yeah. idea. I mean, it's this is uh, this is the future, I think. And first of all, mm -hmm. we're all doing this now, or at least a lot of us are, with our phones. This uh, wireless charging, it's inductive charging. It uses electromagnetic induction to provide electricity to portable devices. Um, it's similar, if not identical, to what's being used in vehicles. Also, power tools, electric toothbrushes, medical devices, all kinds of things. Um, so we're all already on a on a path uh, for this, and um, so this is one one great company. But you know, there's been some efforts. That I, I'm a big fan of uh, <laughs> a stretch of Interstate 85 in Georgia called the Ray. Uh, uh, the Ray is, of course, named after Ray Anderson, the the great. Uh, a businessman uh, and, and sustainability evangelist who had headed um, Interface Carpet. And uh, the Ray is this a stretch of highway where, they, where they've been doing a lot of experimenting with roads and, and putting solar into the roads, for example. Um, and they've been experimenting with a 20-seat uh, electro EV bus that's been receiving 25 kilowatts from the road while it drives more than 50, 50 miles an hour down the Ray. So this isn't 
as science fiction, now we have to, as you said, build this into the roads. But um, I, I think this is, uh, you know, and, and then it's also the, the parking spaces. We don't have to. Every parking space, I predict, at least in, in a lot of parts of the of, of the world and, and in a lot of parking lots and things, will be inductive charging spots where you just, or at least they'll, they'll start with a few and then it'll become commonplace where you just park there and you don't have to plug anything in. Your car is charging while you're there. It's a, a weaker charge. That if you So it's I- ideal if you're going to be there for several hours or overnight, or if you're just driving down the road, as I said, it's it's keeping your car you know, charged up Topped off. while you drive. Yeah. So yeah. I like that. I am, as I said, charged up about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing that, I mean, so so the, the, the thing we need there is standards, right? So, and that's, that is something that Witcher City is working on and, and others. Um, the other thing I do like about this is that it could charge any vehicle, any EV, right? Because part of the, part of the challenge I think intellectually I have with, with EV sales and in general is like, you don't want to have as, do we really want as many cars on the roads we have now? Like, is, is the goal of the, the next generation of transportation to just replace what we have now with electric? Or is it to also use more buses, use trains differently, use public options, use shuttles, whatever they are? And I think the, the fact that, um, you know, this could be more ubiquitous would also help make sure that more formats are supported. So that's just another thought. Yeah. Well, now you're getting philosophical. And I if we're going to get philosophical, let's move over to an, another story <laughs> we did this week, uh, an interview that uh, our colleague Grant Harrison, who's a director and senior analyst for sustainable finance and ESG here at GreenBiz, an uh, interview he did with Allison Taylor, who is the executive director of the research organization Ethical Systems, about ESG and and uh, why ethics are part of the equation. Um, pretty interesting interview, very thought-provoking. Um, and I like the way that uh, uh, they tied together, you know, ethics at ESG and Ukraine, uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and at one point she says, it's fascinating how many ESG leaders at big investment firms stress that ESG is not about making business more ethical, but allowing better identification of social and environmental risks. And and I think that she she's clearly taking issue with that perception that this really needs to be about how do we make sure that the organizations are uh, certainly looking at social and environmental risks, but also looking at uh, ethics as part of the equation. What did you take away from this, Heather? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the point that that I really walked away with was you know, and this gets into the whole like like human rights in your labor chain, in your supply chain, that is an ESG issue, I would say. Um, but like, we don't necessarily, I think people ne- think about the environmental stuff. It, this actually kind of brings in the whole social, the S part of it, right? Um, how you're, how you're um, really highlighting and underscoring those issues. And I think part of the great timing list of this interview is, is that the war in the Ukraine is making pe- a lot of people think about um, so many different things. So for example, it's obviously a human rights issue. It's a issue of democracy. It's an issue of energy um, as well, because we know that if we want to be boycotting, you know, that we, we just know that cutting off Russia is, is going, is sending shockwaves through the European energy sector um, for so many different reasons. We can't get into all of them here, but 
Um, you know, if you're still buying fossil fuels, if you're still supporting fossil fuels, um, you know, is that a good ESG strategy? How do you how do you respond to this with Russia? Um, so there's just a lot of you know decisions. I think decisions that people were were thinking they would have time to make or th- think through a little bit more. They're having to make I think more quickly. Um, there's also the issue of you know is a military stock a defense contract a defense stock in an ESG portfolio is that is that really ESG like is that especially right now, if you, you know, can you say that that's um, aligned with an ESG ethos? Um, And I'll use that word because that is what she focuses on. The other thing I really appreciated about this um, interview is sort of where she was talking about how, how this gets taught in the first place, right? And this is something that I come back to a lot is how future business leaders are educated about some of these things. Um, and she's because she's teaching at uh, is it NYU? Uh, she's yeah she's it's I think the um, oh my god I'm spacing out any the Stern the Stern School of Business at NYU, and she's talking about some of the classes and how they're not um, like sustainability for example is an elective um, where she's teaching and so she points out that it's it attracts people who are already convinced. So she's saying that that we need to think about m- embedding some of these. Uh, discussions and topics and um, schools of thought into the the mandatory courses for business schools. And I think that's kind of a like professional responsibility and um, building this into maybe the business ethics um, classes that are going on. I don't know. It just, uh, and that to me was like one of those, I, I read that and I was like, wow. Yeah. I mean, like actually the students could probably teach the professors <laughs> on that one. Right. But, but, but still, I mean, the, the point being that we don't require this right now. So people are, it, it's not taught, it's being taught in real time. Yeah. And I would maintain that these are not just uh, S issues, but also G issues going governance. A yeah, lot of yeah, this is exactly. mm-hmm. what's, what's the role of the companies uh, want to, you know, that should be playing in, in, in society today. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute with a couple other stories we're going to talk about. But before that, I love the question that Grant asked uh, Allison. He said, you're sitting at the table with the heads of ESG investing for the five largest assets managers in the world. And you've got the floor for 10 minutes uninterrupted. What do you tell them, ask them, or implore them to do or not do? And she just she replies, uh, first of all, are they definitely listening and not looking at their phones? <laughs> I love that. But she said she she said, I'd ask them to hire more social psychologists, behavioral scientists, and anthropologists for two reasons. So first of all, let me say that again. Hire more social psychologists, behavioral scientists an anthropologist for two reasons. One, to study their influence on the wider financial and corporate ecosystem and to get much more deliberate and thoughtful about the the second and third order consequences of their decisions. They play such a huge role, she says, not just in influencing companies directly, but in shaping wider behavior in the system. That's a huge responsibility and they need help. Um, and so, yeah, I think mm-hmm. this is, a, again, really, really thought provoking. But we talked about the role of business in in society. That brings up two stories that we want to focus on uh, here, both about lobbying and corporate climate policy. Uh, One by our colleague, Jim Giles, um, uh, that asks, uh, well, the question says, in lobbyists versus sustainability, the lobbyists are winning. Um, 
and you know gets to this issue that also Bill Weil, founder and executive director of Climate Voice, full disclosure, I am on the board of Climate Voice, um, that he asks uh, a very similar question, are you ready for your close-up on climate policy? Both of these stories, which I strongly encourage our listeners to, to read, uh, are about the disconnect so many companies have, including some of the leaders uh, in sustainability, on how they're also showing up in the policy arena, um, both as as advocates or as members of organizations, or in some cases, just being quiet. And that's, I think, the, one of the really important pieces of this. For a long time, if you think of the bell curve, you know, the two shallow ends with the big fat middle at either end, uh, you've got some companies at one end that are always out front on these issues on climate and, and other uh, ESG issues or certainly environmental ones. And you've got at the other end, uh, mostly the fossil fuel lobby that's always dragging their heels and, and trying to stop progress. And in the big fat middle is everybody else, which is those who are basically not doing anything. They're on the sidelines. And for a long, long time, that was a safe place to be. But that's changing. And uh, as as uh, Bill Weil writes, uh, you know, are you ready for your close up on climate policy? This is becoming the sidelines are becoming an unsafe space. Companies are being asked, prodded, uh, maybe pushed and shoved into the policy arena. Take a stand, advocate for align your advocacy with your climate policies. Uh, because anything short of that is hypocrisy and detrimental. So uh, I love these two pieces, and we we uh, I love. I hope everybody takes them, reads them, and takes them to heart, and passes them along to their government relations departments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I don't really have all that much to add. I, I just other than two things. One is that um, they're they're seen. We've seen some um, guidelines on this come out in the last couple of weeks from this the series organization, but also others uh, the, the responsible. Uh, lobbying organization. I'm looking for the name. It's on the tip of my tongue, um, but but there are some specific guidelines. And I think the one thing that, if you want to put it in, in quotes, responsible end quote, climate lobbying looks like um, one of the things that you'll see often in now in the in the in sort of suggestions coming out from investor groups is that you really need to closely look at your trade associations, and that comes through. That's just being trumpeted loud and clear um, because many times the the corporate sustainability people don't have don't really have the line of sight into that, and those are often the organizations that are kind of on the other side, um, directly challenging policies that could be helpful to um, a, a corporation's climate agenda. So you know that's it's just sort of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. There's a new global standard out called the Global Standard on Responsible Climate Lobbying, um, developed by a number of a group of in, uh, investment groups. Um, I did a piece a couple weeks ago on that, and I definitely would look at that. There's some really great suggestions in there. And the other thing I'll mention is um, Bill Weil, who, who of course, you, you mentioned earlier and who is quoted in Jim's essay, and I'll, uh, he has started a column. So his his piece is the first now in a, in a regular column he'll be doing with, on specific specific ideas and, and, and ways that the corporations could... Um, can actually deliver on that. And I, you know, I don't know about you, Joel, I know we've been kind of squawking about this for a couple of years now, both you and I have been kind of on about it, but it, it, it's 
it feels like the tipping point is here. Like this has to happen, you know? Yeah. I, well, I yeah. I mean, the, the tipping point if you, or the leverage point perhaps was uh, build back better. The, the, uh, the, the massive bill that uh, President Biden submitted that contained uh, over a half trillion dollars uh, for climate-related um, uh, measures, uh, carbon-free energy tax breaks for EV, electric vehicles and other measures that would have eliminated more than a billion tons of carbon dioxide in about 10 years or a dozen years. Um, and, and so many of the organizations, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, the National Association of Manufacturers in the U.S., lobbied hard against that and uh, ultimately at least defeated it for the moment. Some of that, those provisions may show up again before it's all over. Um, and that's, uh, again, so many of the companies that have already made net zero, 100% renewable, uh, science-based target kinds of commitments are members of these organizations. That just doesn't make sense. And it's going to become increasingly and increasingly unsustainable. And I think we're going to have to see some companies act, acting on this. The question is, will there be, you know, uh, who's going to start the snowball? Is Will there be a couple of companies that exit the business roundtable or start pushing in a certain direction that, that creates uh, the virtuous cycle, the snowball effect? That remains to be seen. White is a longtime environmental policy expert with extensive experience leading nonprofits, including Yellowstone Forever, which provides educational programming for Yellowstone National Park. In her day job as a consultant, she advises businesses, foundations, and nonprofits on ways to create a greener, healthier, and more equitable world. Over the past three years, Heather has also become an expert on climate anxiety, a topic she tackles through her nonprofit, One Green Thing. That passion was part of the inspiration for her forthcoming book, One Green Thing, Discover Your Hidden Power to Help Save the Planet, which is due out on April 19th. She joins me to chat about her inspiration and her mission. Hi, Heather. It's great to have you here. Hi. Hi, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, I have to ask first, Erin Brockovich wrote your foreword. How do you know her and why was she the right voice for this? Oh, such a great question, Heather. I've been working with Erin for more than a decade. We met when we were um, focusing on water contamination in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Mm. Um, her um, advocacy helped lift up the fight of several veterans who were concerned about water contamination. One of the largest um, male breast cancer clusters in um, that really ever recorded hmm. happened at Camp Lejeune, where more than a hundred folks, their only connection to um, each other was time spent on Camp Lejeune um, that had male breast cancer, and this concern that the drinking water contaminant exposure they had may have made that link. So we also worked on hexavalent chromium. We worked on um, the Clean Water Act um, regulations and environmental health as well. One of the big passions that Erin has in a terrific website that she runs, which is the Community um, Health Book, is the fact that you know she's become a de facto um, AT 
um, AST, excuse me, the agency, the Toxics Agency Disease Registry, ATSDR. It's a mouthful, yep. but she's become like a de facto reporting agency for people across the country who have had different cancers or different health effects that could have a connection to environmental impacts. Mm -hmm. And what we did together was try to uh, encourage Congress to make sure that these reporting agencies are following people as they move and not just looking at the zip code of diagnosis, but potentially looking at the zip code or where they've been exposed. So we've been working together for a decade. <laughs> she actually, uh, one of the reasons I thought she was such a great fit for the forward of the book is that in 2020, she released a book called Superman's Not Coming. And the whole idea is that no one's going to save us. And my book is kind of a, a book into that, a part two of that, that tries to show you how you can be the superhero that we all need right now. Gosh. Okay. Great. Thank you for that background. Um, sure. So climate anxiety, also known as AKA eco-anxiety, that's the underlying theme of the book. Can you define what you mean by that? And Sure. Yeah. The personal impact, your personal impact as well. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So what, what started me on this journey really was my older daughter. I mean, both of my daughters have eco-anxiety, but three years ago, my older daughter was a freshman in high school and she asked if she could be part of the Greta Thunberg inspired climate strike. And I, you know, I've been an environmentalist for a really long time. I was, of course, you know, sure. But I noticed that there were supposed to be thunderstorms the day of the walkout. That's kind of rare in Bozeman, Montana, where I live. And my daughter had a really heavy backpack. You know, kids these days, those backpacks like weigh a ton. And she had a trumpet, super awkward to walk out. So I offered to pick her up and drive her <laughs> to do the climate strike. And she uh, was really angry with me, you know, on so many levels, she was insulted that I, I, it was a walkout, but I was going to try to pick her up that I was going to drive her to a climate strike. And then also here I was worried about, you know, her getting wet in the rain and carrying a heavy backpack. But what was I doing as a Gen Xer in the climate movement? And she started, this was all at the dinner table and she got really upset and talked about how she felt that we, meaning millennials, Gen X and baby boomers have abandoned Gen Z and that the climate crisis is all on their shoulders. And I mean, even after 20 years of environmental advocacy and work in climate and energy, my husband also was very involved in environmental policy as far as his career. You know, I felt like we needed to share our resumes with our kids, <laughs> but I realized <laughs> it was time to, to step up my personal game, mm -hmm. game and also understand the impacts that the climate crisis and the future we're leaving our kids has on the mental health of young people, especially. And so that's kind of how my journey started. But eco-anxiety is actually defined by the American Psychological Association as the chronic fear of environmental doom. And more and more practitioners in psychology, I am not a psychologist, I'm an environmental lawyer, an activist, an advocate, and a parent, um, but I've been, done a lot of research in this space, but more and more psychologists and psychiatrists are seeing patients who are coming to them and presenting with um, you know, anxiety manifesting in, in a fear of environmental issues. So we're going to get to the book in a moment, but just one follow-up here. How has that revelation that, that that experience impacted your own work? Great, great question, Heather. I was inspired by this research and inspired by my own children's journey to create a nonprofit called OneGreenThing.org. And the book and the nonprofit are connected to each other with the idea that we need to start talking about the mental health impacts of the climate crisis 
but also that as much as we need to create space and create conversation and opportunities for people to express how they're feeling, their fear, their uh, sense of loss, their grief, anger, we also need to make sure that we're moving together in action because action will help abate this anxiety. And one of the concepts too for this organization is that for most people, the issue of climate is so overwhelming, people don't know where to start. And so the nonprofit One Green Thing, the idea was, here's an entry point. Let's mm-hmm. just start with a daily practice of sustainability, one green thing each day. It can be, d- depending on what your particular interests are, what your talents and what your strengths are, it can be something as simple as taking a walk in nature. It can be going to the climate strike. It can be calling your member of Congress saying you want the Build Back Better provisions in the climate bill. There's a whole range of activities that Mm -hmm. you can take, but that we need to have intergenerational conversation and dialogue. I refer to it as think beyond your age in the book, but we all need to come together and create spaces for not only the feelings of climate anxiety, but also moving together um, intergenerationally in action for climate solutions. I love how you frame the the one green thing idea as a quote, repeated uplifting act, like end quote. I love that, that it's an uplifting thing, something that makes you feel that you makes you think and feel differently, but also someone else, um, you know, that you could touch someone else. So, you know, tease this concept out a little bit more for our listeners, keeping in mind that the Green Biz 350 audience is corporate sustainability professionals. So how could that one green thing idea apply to their personal and professional life? I think it's, it's such a simple concept um, at first, but when you start to dig in, you could see how powerful it can be, not only in your workplace, but personally. This idea of doing one thing each day is not so much, even if you're a corporate sustainability director, it's not so much about your individual carbon footprint. It's not as much about the math as it is this idea of a daily practice, a daily habit, doing one thing for the planet can create a culture shift. And that's where all of these actions can add up. So if it's in the workplace, a one green thing can be, you know, um, sharing information about your sustainability program, what your big success was or what your big miss it could be. It could be a wellness activity that you have in the workplace where you um, create a garden in your workplace. You know, it could be composting. It could be... Mm-hmm. Um, really a whole wide range of things. But I think what might be exciting for your listeners is another entry point I have into this daily practice, this idea of not only can the habit shift the culture to embrace big systemic change that we need and create that culture shift, I think it's also very exciting that it can bring joy into your life. Because I think so much of our conversation tends to be, and especially when we're talking about young people and when we're trying as environmentalists, conservationists, sustainability experts, we're trying to shift the needle. We need to move away from like, no, really there's a problem because the fact is the majority of Americans know that there's a problem. Uh, We need to start talking about solutions and what we're working towards in a positive future. What, What a regenerative, sustainable future can look like to get people excited. So I think that joy part is exciting. And the other thing I would add from a corporate perspective is that I've created an assessment, which I call the service superpower assessment. It's almost like an Enneagram or a Myers-Briggs 
where you can find out who you are in service. And then you can take your personality type. Um, There's seven different archetypes that I have in the book. And also the organization is organized around this as well. And then I have a 21 day plan, (laughs) almost like a fitness plan, Heather, you know, or a wellness plan um, of ideas of a one green thing you can do each day. So you can do that personally, but you can also brainstorm with others and create an opportunity of just this idea of a daily practice, bringing that joy, bringing that focus on your mission uh, collectively to work if, you, if you'd like. So I think there's a lot of exciting possibilities for it. So what's your su- service superpower? Well, I'm a philanthropist, which is the okay. giver. Um, that's the person. It's a big fancy name. I think a lot of times when people think of philanthropists, they think of the monopoly guy with the monocle and the top mm-hmm. hat. You know? And it's a it's a really fancy name for the person who shows up by donating time and serve either their their time, their resources, their connections to a cause. And then I'm also a wonk. So I'm a philanthropist wonk. And a wonk is you know one of my favorite DC words, but it's true. It's the person who loves the data, the analysis, is a fixer, loves problem solving. So together, the philanthropist wonk helps me make that impact in service. But the other type of uh, the other service types are the adventurer, the person who's a hands-on learner, who loves to take people outside of their comfort zone. There's also the beacon, the person who's really focused and centered in justice, kind of the person who might be out front on the, you know, at the podium or with a bullhorn at a rally. Then there's also the influencer who's all about people, people, people. I think you might have aspects of the influencer, Heather. That's what um, I suspect. I don't know if you've taken the assessment yet. I haven't Um, done that yet. No. (laughs) Yeah. It's super fun. The influencer. And then there's also uh, the sage, the person who's focused on the spiritual connection to nature and the environment. And that's a big motivator for them. And then one of the profiles that I've gotten a lot of terrific feedback from is the spark. And the spark is the person who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves an environmentalist, but they're the type of person who would say, sure, I'm in. They raise their hand to say, sure, I'm in. So, um, you know, if you're going to a lecture or if there's a cool article, or if you want to go see a documentary, that's the person that will be your plus one. And without the spark, there isn't a movement. We have to have those people that are sure, you know, I'm in, count me in. And that's a really important role to play too in the climate movement. I wonder if your daughter is a spark. She is. Yes. My younger daughter is a spark. My <laughs> older daughter is the beacon. Yes. Ah. The one who was like, let me be out front. I want to go. She actually, Got it. Um, in 2021, uh, led the Bozeman climate strike, which is pretty nice. exciting for, for okay. Bozeman high school. But my younger daughter's definitely the spark. <laughs> so would the idea be that you would have all of these people yeah, in your I, group? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think there's different ways for you to develop different aspects of who you are, but yes, mm-hmm. as you look, approach a team for sure. Okay. So bring this home for the, uh, the, the corporate sustainability world. What's your call to action for the, the Green Biz 350 listeners? Oh, I think a call to action. I think the most important thing you can do is talk to a young person you love about climate change. And, you know, I use the verb talk to, but it really should be listen. It should be ask. That's the verb. Ask them what they think about climate. I think one of the things that I get from several of my colleagues who aren't in sustainability when they hear about my book, this concept of eco anxiety, you know, Heather. Of course, your kids have eco-anxiety. You're an environmentalist. You know? You're know, you an environmental lawyer. You've been doing this for, for decades. And when I say to them, just take a minute 
and ask someone you love who's younger, preferably in Gen Z, a kid born after 1997, ask them about the climate crisis. I think they're shocked because every single person that I have had engage with young people they love have been floored. Um, For example, one of my friends said that her son said, mom, I think about the climate crisis every day. We just don't talk about it at the dinner table, but it's front and center in my mind. Uh, And this, this anger, this concern that we are leaving the future all on their shoulders is something that's first and foremost. And I think for corporate sustainability people, it's really important as the, when you're in that profession to understand as Gen Z enters the workplace, this idea of intergenerational partnership, this idea of dialogue, and this idea of making sure we're communicating with them that we have done big, big global things before that are positive and that the solutions aren't just happy talk, that they're here and that we're moving forward and that we're real and that they're not alone. I think that's really the the most important takeaway is to create that space to listen to young people about what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. Well, Heather, I'm really glad you dropped by GreenBiz350 to talk about your book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Heather. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about it. And I'm excited about the change that we can all create together. You just heard from Heather White, author of the forthcoming book, One Green Thing, Discover Your Hidden Power to Help Save the Planet, due out in April. Our regular contributor, CJ Klaus, senior writer, now joins us with a segment on a startup called Wilk which is using mammary cells from cows to produce lab-grown ingredients with the aim of making alternative milk products more nutritious and closer to the real thing. With so many alternative dairy products on the market, it probably won't surprise you to hear that plant-based milk sales now account for more than 15% of all milk cells in the U.S., and that number's only going up. But while Americans are drinking less cow's milk than ever, Globally, things are headed in the other direction. Driven by increased demand in countries like China, India, and Brazil, worldwide milk production is expected to increase 1.6% each year this decade. At the same time, animal agriculture's environmental impact can't be ignored if we want to keep this planet livable. So how do we feed a growing human population that's currently on track to reach 9.7 billion somewhere around mid-century on a planet with finite resources, while at the same time reining in agriculture's environmental footprint. Dr. Nareet Argov-Argaman wanted to try and help solve this dilemma, so she co-founded a company called Wilk. Argov-Argaman is a researcher and lecturer at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and a lactation physiology specialist. And Wilk is one of an emerging group of startups in the field of cellular agriculture. These are companies that aim to produce animal products grown from cells in a lab. But while some cellular ag companies and their counterparts in the plant-based meat and dairy sectors are looking to replace animal products, the Israeli startup is taking a B2B approach. Using mammary cells from cows, the company wants to make alternative milk products that are more nutritious and closer to the real thing by providing its lab-grown ingredients to partners in the dairy industry. At the same time, Wilk is working on a similar process for producing ingredients from human mammary cells to enhance infant formula. 
The way that they do it is pretty fascinating. I'll let Argov Argumen explain. The basic steps of making milk from cow or from human cells is very similar. So basically the whole process starts with uh, isolating the a specific population of cells from mammary gland. Every female mammal has this unique population of cells beside the, the mammary gland. They have the capacity to produce milk components. So these cells respond to hormones produced in the ovaries. And even if the woman or the cow is not pregnant and has never breastfed before, the cells can be induced into lactation. Wilk has these cells in their lab and they feed them nutrients so they grow and multiply. And once they reach a certain critical mass, they move into a bioreactor, which bioreactor you can think of uh, like stainless steel vessels that have millions of cells inside growing together. The benefits of the, of the bioreactor is you can monitor the cells, constantly monitor uh, their, the condition of the culture. At a certain point, you stop them from proliferation and you induce them into their final differentiation step, which is basically similar to the phase they go through once the women uh, give birth. So they stop propagating, stop proliferating, and start using the nutrients in a process that is called lactation, which is the process of producing and secreting milk components. Well, it gets the cells from a few different sources. The bovine cells are sometimes taken from cow's milk itself and sometimes from tissue biopsies. The human cells Wilk gets from two Israeli hospitals. Donors there at the hospitals sign agreements with Wilk through the hospital's ethics committees. So the women are completely aware and they're compensated for their donations. The actual donations are a little bit different depending on which of the two hospitals they're coming from. Uh, one provides us with breast milk that women donate uh, after birth. And basically, there is a natural process that some of the milk-producing cells are shed from the breast into milk. We have a collaboration with the biggest hospital in Israel, it's called Ichilov, and there we get breast tissue from breast reduction surgeries. I was personally fascinated by the fact that Wilk is working on breast milk as well as cow's milk. By now, breast milk's health benefits for babies are pretty common knowledge among parents and parents-to-be. But what a lot of people might not know is not being able to breastfeed your baby for whatever reason can be really, really stressful. Some women have physiological challenges to breastfeeding. Some simply can't manage to do the recommended six-month minimum because they're working two or three jobs. And then there's adoptive parents, gay men and straight couples like me and my husband. We adopted our daughter 11 years ago, and for the first four to six months of her life, we were getting donated breast milk, first from a friend and then through a website where you're connected with breastfeeding moms in your area who are willing to donate some of their milk. So I can tell you, for those of us who can't breastfeed, there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of guilt, like maybe we're not doing what's best for our babies. I can totally relate to the things that you, you just said, because there are so many social, physiological, economical factors that interplay in this, our ability to provide our uh, children with breast milk. And also, we need to remember that the World Health Organization recommends six months of exclusive breastfeeding. 
I don't know a lot of women that can really do that. I, I couldn't. It's extremely difficult to do that. And, and I admire women that are capable and succeed. But we need to remember that not everybody physically, again, socially, economically, uh, not, not every kid uh, has the, the availability of rest uh, meal for the entire period. And for these kids, uh, we need to provide a good enough alternative and make it the, the infant formula more similar to the real meat. Last July, the Central Bottling Company, that's Coca-Cola's Israeli franchise, said it would invest $2 million in the startup to accelerate commercialization of its cell-cultured milk products. As part of the deal, CBC-owned Tara Dairy will be the first to use Wilk ingredients in pilot commercial production of an enhanced alternative milk. Wilk expects to have both dairy and infant formula products on the market in the next couple of years. The population of the world is uh, increasing. And there are going to be some uh, issues and conflicts on the food that is available on the planet. Okay, so there's certain amount of food, and we need to get, we we need to start feeding 9.5, 10 billion people 20, 25 years from now. So um, the food industry will have to expand its ability to produce food in general, but also milk. And we need to do that, reducing the impact of the environment. Greenhouse gas emission, animal welfare, utilization of water, utilization of land. Considering all that, I think that we will see more and more alternative ways of producing animal protein or animal products. And cultured milk is certainly one of them. There are a handful of other startups as well working on cell-cultured cow's milk and or breast milk. So we will likely be seeing more on this, not just from Wilk, but from others in the next few years. I'd like to thank Dr. Argov Argaman for her time. This segment was taken from a much longer conversation I had with her. If you'd like to read more about Wilk and cellular agriculture, there's a Q&A up on the Green Biz website as we speak. The super cool music from this segment is by Av Moi Om. I'm CJ Klaus. See you next time. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. There's seven of them, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you. Your comments, questions, and tips, hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.